beautiful. <clears throat> That's a beautiful sight, too, see you all here. Um, Got a great crowd. Uh, it looks like every row is packed, and that's a wonderful thing. Today we are uh, having our home Bible studies tonight, and uh, today's lesson is the last in that series on, on idols, and it's the last of our home Bible studies. So we're kind of in both of those at the same time. Uh, I want to begin uh, just by uh, sharing two resources with you. Uh, this is our fifth lesson on the study of um, idolatry. And two books that have been extremely helpful to me, I want to recommend to you, if you would like to go further, dig a little deeper, I recommend both of these to you. One is called Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. Uh, You've heard me reference him a couple of times in this study. Another is the one that I chose to use our topic, our sermon title, Gods at War by Kyle Eidelman. Uh, They go into much more detail than we've been able to just these five weeks, but if this topic has intrigued you at all and you'd like to... Uh, take it further, really on a personal level, either of these books would be uh, a great blessing. So I recommend those to you. If you're a guest with us, if you look in your bulletin, on the back side is an uh, outline that you can follow along for our lesson. Uh, The insert is a study guide. We'll use that in our uh, Bible study groups tonight. Um, If you're not a part of a group, there'll be a group that meets here at the building. You're welcome to come and be a part of that. We'll have a meal here as well. So uh, we'd love for you to come and to join one of those. Um, look at this next slide. There's a book, and you may have heard of this before, The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. You ever heard of that? It's kind of old. I think it was uh, published back in the 60s. It's based on uh, research from a Dr. Milton Rokic. Uh, he was treating three patients who suffered from delusions of grandeur. All three of them believed they were Jesus Christ. And so what he did, uh, he put them all together and, and treated them together. He got the idea from an, another article that he'd read where there are two women who thought they were both the Virgin Mary, so they were put together, they roomed together, and it actually cured one of them because they realized they can't both be, and so he thought, well, let's try that with these three. I mean, you've heard of the Messiah complex. These three took it to another level. So he got that idea. They roomed together. They lived together. They did their uh, group ser- uh, therapy sessions together. One of the men would say, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I've come to earth to save mankind. So Rokic would ask him, how do you know? And the man would say, God told me. Well, just then one of those three would chime in and say, I did no such thing. And then the other one would chime in. Unfortunately, his research was not helpful with these guys. Now, we laugh and think about how sad that is, how silly that is to, to lose touch with a reality like that, but here's my point. Maybe we lose touch all the time. Maybe we're not so different. Eric Bryant said that his small group last time identified cell phones as a possible false god. We hadn't talked about that one. James Thomas sent me a link to an article on CNBC, and I want to share just a little bit of that with you. It's called The New Religion, and it starts out like this. Facebook now has 1.65 billion users spending an average of 50 minutes a day, 50 minutes a day on its platforms, Facebook, Messenger, Instagram, WhatsApp, and all the others. 
The amount of time spent in devotion on our online selves now rivals the amount of time humanity spends in worship of the major religions. Now he goes on to say, can the Catholic Church claim a billion and a half people doing anything for almost an hour a day in service? Can Islam... Buddhism may come close, he says, or Hinduism, but probably not really should you calculate the actual minutes of the day and the actual amount of worshipers. But we love ourselves and sharing facets of ourselves with the world, projecting the us that's fit for the consumption of, other, of others, or some better, smarter, richer, sexier version of ourselves. It's just a snapshot or a line of text we have all the control in the world. We get to reveal in small doses. He goes on, Facebook's market cap is $330 billion. $330 billion as a result of his explosive opening. It's trading at more than 13 and a half sales, I mean 13 times sales, and is now one of the most valuable companies in the history of planet Earth. And you could say it shouldn't be for reasons A, B, and C, and these would be rational opinions. But has any company before ever monopolized this much of humanity's time and attention in mass around the world? Will any subsequent company be able to do so anytime soon? And then he makes this contrast. The Super Bowl is the most widely watched event in the world, and it's, beca and it's because roughly 100 million people watch it. He says Facebook wouldn't get out of bed for that kind of nightly audience. And think of the dollar amounts that the Super Bowl commands for a 30-second ad. Facebook's usage is more than 10 times the Super Bowl, and it's 24-7, 365. And look at the screen. Here's how he concluded. Here's the best part. No one expects to be paid anything to create content for the platform. We're the football players. We're the announcers. We're the cheerleaders. We do it all for free out of the sheer joy we experience from the exposition of ourselves, and we never get bored with it. Value that. We've got a problem. And the problem is us. It's the God of me. And every one of us can struggle with this. Now, you may never call yourself Jesus. You may never think of yourself as the Messiah. But you are unusual if this is not a struggle, having the God of me. And the God of me will make you lonely because the God of me cannot handle any equals. It will certainly make you where you can't handle authority. You need people to constantly affirm that it's all about you. Listen to God's Word in Ezekiel 28, verse 2. God says, In the pride of your heart you say, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. But you are a man and not a God, though you think you are as wise as a God. We've called this series Gods at War, but it's really just me versus God, isn't it? It's just self versus God. It's flesh versus the Spirit. All these other gods in one way or another, and I hope you've seen this through this study, is taking God off the throne and putting yourself there. There's an image in Scripture that God uses back in the Old Testament to describe how absurd this is. But how real it is. Jeremiah, 29, verse, uh, Jeremiah 2, verse 9. So therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. And then verse 11. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they're not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory 
for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken the spring of living water and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now we realize the truth of what he's saying there. Anybody who's studied knows that cisterns are an important part of life during Jeremiah's day. That it was not very, the rain was not very plentiful about six months out of the year, so they would try to trap the water, contain the water, so they'd dig these holes, these cisterns, and, but you know, they were always having trouble with them. They would put you know, rocks and cement and brick and, and plaster to try to make them watertight, but they were constantly leaking. Or the water would drain out. Or it was not dependable. Or the water would become stagnant. Or they didn't save enough. And so the people of Jeremiah's day would have known that this, this metaphor was absurd. Why would you choose a broken cistern over fresh water? A good source. It makes no sense at all. And yet that captures the ridiculousness of idolatry. We look to something or someone else to do what only God can do for us. Instead of looking to God for comfort, we turn to food or mindless entertainment. Instead of looking to God as a source of significance, we look to careers or success. Instead of turning to God for our security, we turn to money and stuff. Instead of God being our source of joy, we put that pressure on our children or our spouse. Instead of looking to God for our hope, we look to our country, our politicians, our government. Instead of looking to God for truth, we look at what's happening. What's the culture saying? And all these things are not necessarily bad or evil. We've been talking about this. In fact, God may use them to bring about His purpose. But they can easily become broken cisterns, substitutes for the living water I think some of us have wrestled with idolatry all of our lives. I want us to look today for the next couple of moments at the story of Jacob. We all know the story of Jacob, and you can turn your Bibles if you want to. The verses are going to be on the screen. In our last lesson two weeks ago, we talked about Abraham. And the story of Abraham is so important because God makes a promise that through his lineage, all the world will be blessed. And so what that meant then, for every generation that followed, one child would have that blessing. One child would carry on the lineage that one day that Messiah would come through them. And this would continue until one day the Messiah came. God knew so much was at stake with Abraham when He gave him this promised son. And He knew that if His focus was on the promised son instead of the promised keeper, so many things could go awry, and so God tested Abraham. Remember, we talked about that, and we're so thankful that Abraham passed the test. Years later, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, became pregnant with twins, and God spoke through a prophecy saying in Genesis 25-23, the elder shall serve the younger. This meant, of course, that the twin born second would be the one to... to through whose line the lineage would come, the Messiah would come. And Isaac seemed to ignore that. And he still favored his older son, Esau. We know the story there. And he, he favored him over Jacob. And I Esau grew up proud, arrogant, spoiled, willful, and impulsive. 
And because of his dad's favoritism, Jacob grew up cynical and bitter. Remember, it was time for Isaac to give the blessing, and he tended to give it to Esau in defiance of the prophecy. But Jacob, dressed up like his brother, received the blessing from his nearly blind father. Esau found out about it, almost instantly vowed to kill his brother. And so Jacob has to run for his life. His life was in ruins. He'd lost his family, no inheritance, nowhere to go. He would never see his father and mother alive again. So he leaves and goes to the country of his mother's relatives in hopes that at least he can survive. And he did well. His uncle Laban, remember, hired him and made an arrangement for a marriage. Now, relationally, you might say that Jacob grew up in a dysfunctional family. I think that would be a fair statement. He never had his father's love. He had lost his mother's love. All that was gone. And into his life walks this beautiful young woman. The Hebrew text text there tells us she was beautiful. In fact, it says she has a great figure and she was beautiful. So we're talking this lady really had the looks going on and Jacob was smitten. Or we might say he was gone. I mean, he looked upon her and he realized what he wanted. It was all he could think about. They strike a deal. You remember this? For seven years he would work. Verse 20 says, So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. After fulfilling that agreement, Jacob says to Laban, and these words are kind of hard to hear, Give me my wife. I want her now. Now, that's Randy's cleaned up version because there's young ears listening. But open your Bibles there and listen to what this young man says to his future father-in-law. Give me, your, give me my wife. I want the honeymoon. I'm giving you the rated G version. That book in your lap has the rated R version. That's how blunt he was. That's what he was saying here. You get the picture that Jacob was a man overwhelmed with emotional and sexual longing for this woman. But why? Why would he say this? Why would he react this way? Jacob's life up to this point had been disappointing at best. I think it's a fair statement to say that his heart was empty. Now, culture historians tell us that in ancient times, people didn't generally marry for love. They married for status. And it's still true in some cultures even today. Nevertheless, Jacob would not be rare in our circles. We read that line about that seven years was like that, and we just think, man, that would be a great Hallmark card, wouldn't it? And we think, how romantic is that? How enamored is, is he with her over that? In fact, Jacob sounds normal to us. We read through this story and we don't even raise an eyebrow. Now, we might think it brash if he were that young man coming to ask for our daughter's hand in such a way. But we live in a time where it's all about romantic love. And our culture bombards us with this message. It's all about the sexual experience. It's not so much about marriage anymore. It's about love. We bought into the line, the song, Dean Martin made it famous and it's been recorded 40-something times. Michael Bublé of late... You're nobody till somebody loves you. You're nobody till somebody loves you. 
Well, time passes and Jacob learns that his uncle Laban and his cousins, they're not too happy with him. Things are rotten in Denmark. They begin to resent him. So the Lord told Jacob to return to his homeland. Chapter 31 gives the details of Jacob telling Rachel and Leah. And they left without telling Laban. You remember the story? Now, we read in Genesis this short subplot that's going on there about Jacob's wife, Rachel. She left with her father's idols. It's time to go. They don't even have time to tell Laban goodbye, but she goes back in the house and grabs her father's idols. Why? Why does she do that? Maybe it was some kind of spiritual insurance policy. Maybe Rachel thought that if the Lord wasn't with her the way that she had seen the Lord bless Leah, that she would have these as a a backup. Maybe a, a, a substitute. Maybe something else to call upon. However, what Rachel needed to know is what we need to know. God is not one God among many. God is not an insurance policy. He's not a backup plan. He's not called upon when everything else fails to come through. He's the one and only That's the message of Scripture from beginning to end. He's the one and only. Well, Jacob set up for his homeland with all of his family, all of his estate, and it's quite large at this point. As he drew near in Genesis 32, 6, it tells about his messengers meeting him with a report, and it's not good. We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. It doesn't take 400 to say welcome home, does it? Jacob's fears are realized. So he springs into action. First thing he does, he divides his family into two groups, thinking that if Esau gets to them, at least he won't kill all of them. Then he prays. And then third, he sends this incredible gift, a lot of livestock, sort of a peace offering, to try to appease Esau, to pacify him. Then verse 21 ends with this. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. And the next several verses in chapter 32 tell us about Jacob's wrestling match. Do you remember this? Interesting story. Kent Dobson wrote the first century student Bible, and he shared this uh, commentary. There is no more mysterious story in Genesis than Jacob's night encounter with the, quote, man, unquote. The text raises more questions than it answers. Who was this person? What was he attempting to do? Was Jacob wrestling with himself? His past? His brother? An angel? Or God himself? Both ancient and modern commentators do not agree on the precise meaning of the wrestling match. Now, zoom back on Jacob's life for a moment. I know we have given a quick overview of this, but think about his life and reflect on what you know, what you remember of it. All of his life has been, been, has been filled with strife. It's been one wrestling match after another, even in the womb with his twin brother. In Genesis 25, the English Standard Version says the children struggled together within her. Before they're even born, this strife is happening. Then after he's born, remember he he tricks him for the birthright. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew it, including Jacob. And few things are more wounding to a son. We already talked about this, this whole fiasco of tricking his brother. 
to, to get the, the, the blessing. But it was so incredibly short-lived. If you go back and you read the text there, he barely left the room when Esau came in to receive the blessing. It was that fast. So what did it accomplish? Because it was all a trick. And we know that from reading the story. So the question is, why did he do it? He didn't get any money. He didn't get anything. In fact, it was the beginning of the end. He had to leave and run for his life. So why did Jacob steal Esau's blessing? I think modern readers have a difficulty understanding what all this means. Because Isaac would have found out the truth at some point. There would have been no money coming to his uh, estate. All Jacob received was a ceremonial affirmation. Why did he risk so much to receive so little? Was Jacob searching, starving, for something every human longs for? For someone to tell them, I delight in you? Every human needs a blessing. Every person needs genuine words of affirmation. Deep down, we're hungry for this. From our parents, from our spouse, our peers, our friend, our co-workers, our boss. We hunger for it. Think about it. You could describe Jacob's entire life as a never-ending wrestling match. Yes, he wrestled this night, but his whole life was this way. Beginning with Esau in the womb, the birthright, tricking him to hear the words from his father's lips. Then he moved on with Laban to strike this deal for Rachel, but even there he's outmaneuvered. His own family relationships were stormy. His, may I call it, idolatry for Rachel plagued his own marriage and, and his favoritism toward her over Leah. You'd think he would have learned favoritism doesn't work. Poisons his own family relationships. Now he returns home because he can't get along with Laban and all the cousins. And there he's got to face Esau and 400 member welcoming committee. No wonder he wanted to spend this night alone. Go back and read Genesis 32 this afternoon before your study time tonight. Read this chapter about what happens in this wrestling episode. It doesn't really give a lot of detail. I think Kent was right when he said, you know, it leaves us with more questions than answers. But it does mention a touch. Remember that? This touch. In the Hebrew, it means a tap. Some supernatural power that evidently dislocates his, his hip. And it's not a quick fix as far as getting over it. I believe this was God Himself or some representation of God. But Jacob would not give up. Look at the screen. Genesis 32, verse 29. I mean, 26. But Jacob replied, even with his hip uh, dislocated, with this, with this injury, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And if you underline your Bible, underline the word struggle there. I'm reading from the NIV, uh, the New American Standard, and other versions say striven, some versions say fault. 
But that word struggle means to persist, to exert oneself, to persevere. So it's not fighting as much as it's hanging on. It's, it's not giving up. It's, it's not saying I give even in a wrestling match. Jacob wouldn't stop. No matter how bad it got, even to the point of this, this hip injury, Jacob was hanging on and not giving up. He was struggling. So let's talk as we end this about finding and, and replacing these idols. The importance of discerning idols. How do I know when something has become an idol? How do I know when someone else has replaced God in a position of throne in my heart? How do I know if it's me? If it's the God of self? How can you understand your own heart or the culture you live in if you do not discern the counterfeit gods that influence them? Romans chapter 1 is not an easy chapter to read, but it's such an important chapter to understand. Because Paul opens the book, the letter to the Romans, explaining how idolatry is not one sin among many, but it's like a core, it's like a, a foundational concept that exploits so many sins. Look at Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. And in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. And if you remember, in Romans chapter 1, Paul goes on to list this, uh, this list of sins that create misery and bring evil into the world. And every one of them can be traced back to this topic we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Idolatry. Something else. Someone else is on the throne of your heart. That's what's causing you. That's what's driving you. That's what's tempting you to, to be subject to all these sins that he lists. And it's not a new concept. It's part of mankind. Jewish philosophers Halderwall and Margulit make it clear that idolatry is not simply a form of ritual worship. But listen to this. A whole sensibility, a pattern of life based on finite values and making created things into godlike substitutes. Do you hear what they're saying there? It's a way of thinking. That's where it comes in. Martin Luther understood this. He said that's why if you go back and you study the Ten Commandments, why God started with idolatry because when you break any of the others that follow, it's you're breaking the first one. So I hope we'll all understand that it's not a matter of if I have counterfeit gods, but it's really more of what or who is competing for the throne of my heart. So how do we discern our idols? How can we be free? William Temple said years ago, your religion is what you do with your solitude. It's what your mind goes to when there's no, you know, no TV, no radio, you've got a moment of silence, what do you think about? We've got free time. Where does your mind go? That can be very revealing. Remember some of the questions from the first lesson? What do you daydream about? Or how do you spend your money? Now, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your money effortlessly flows toward your heart, toward what you treasure, your greatest love. How many of us overspend on clothing, hobbies, children, or status symbols like a house or a car, 
our pattern of spending reveals our idols. And here's the third one. And this really works for those of us who profess the faith of God. I mean, you're sitting in worship. I mean, you know, you believe in, in doctrinal truths and you try to live right for the Lord. So here's the question. What is your real, daily, functional Savior? What is your real, daily, functional Savior? Maybe one way to answer this is to ask another question. How do you respond when your heartfelt prayers are not answered the way you want them answered? How do you respond when your hope is dashed? When things don't go well? What is it that makes you angry? Causes you to explode, lose your temper. That may reveal your true God. Your most uncontrollable emotion. A good fisherman or a hunter knows it's all about picking the right spot. A good shopper knows it's the right store at the right time. Well, it's the same with this. For idols, look at the bottom of your most painful emotions, especially those that won't go away. When you're angry, ask yourself why. Why am I angry about this? Why does this upset me? Is it fear? Is there something else at play? What about this that makes me so angry? Why are you so driven at work? Why do you push yourself? Ask yourself that question and give yourself time to answer it. Why is it you're so consumed with your children's performance? Your house. Tim Keller said, when you pull your emotions up by the roots you'll often find your idols clinging to them. So how do I replace these idols? I think Paul hits the nail on the head with a two-pronged approach in Colossians 3. Look at verses 1 through 5. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is and seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. See, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is setting the heart on something else besides God. So look at this. Two-pronged approach here. Number one, set your hearts and minds on things above. And then number two, put to death the competition. Whatever it is. So that's what he says here. Think about those two and how important they are. See, the power of the Gospel that works in your life, not just for salvation, but ongoing, is, is to ask you what or who is operating from the throne of your heart. Your real functioning salvation. What are you looking to in order to even justify yourself? And then I would add this, and this is kind of part of it too, discipline or training. You've heard of spiritual disciplines? Maybe that's where we need to go next with our study as a church. These spiritual disciplines, not just this is what you need to know and this is what you need to believe, but spiritual disciplines as you read in Scripture, these are things you do. This discipline, this training. 
It doesn't just happen because you decide to believe or you say you believe. These are practices that you implement like, like prayer and worship and meditation and fasting. And, and there's so many of these that you discipline yourself. You train yourself. It's not just a decision. It's a transformation that happens. God and I would add this, be patient. Be patient. Because I think this can take your whole life. It's an ongoing process. Just like Jacob, I mean, yours may not be you know, his issue, but it's an ongoing wrestling match, an ongoing struggle. Something else is crawling up. Something new is, is competing for the throne of our hearts. You know, we are given bodily cravings like th uh, thirst and hunger and then ways to satisfy those. And God would use that word picture in Scripture to talk about hungering, thirsting for Him as the deer thirsts. And hungering, thirsting for righteousness is ongoing. Well, let me close by going back to Genesis 32, verse 29. I want to make sure you get this. Jeremiah, I mean, Genesis 32, 29. The story ends this wrestling match with this phrase, then he blessed him there. Then he blessed him there. Wonderful words. When I read that, I thought, what does that mean? Because a blessing in the Bible is always verbal. So God must have spoken words into Jacob's heart. But what were they? What did he say? I, I wish I knew. Don't you wish you knew? It just says he blessed him there. Were they words like what would be said centuries later? You are my son whom I love and whom I'm well pleased. He blessed him there. We don't know what he said exactly. But we do know there is nothing greater than the blessing of God. Jacob... I'll say walked away. He limped away from this experience, wounded, and yet affirmed like never before. Jacob finally got the blessing he'd longed for all of his life. And it wasn't in success. Think about Jacob's life is not somebody who said, be like Jacob. His life was not really this example of success. Jacob's not really a hero. And it wasn't in relationships. His family of origin, that wasn't healthy. His own marriage, that wasn't healthy. I mean, that wasn't a successful way either. Jacob really didn't seem worthy of blessing at all. I mean, you look at his life and think, why did God bless him? Why was God good to him? I don't think we can answer that question in the book of Genesis. In fact, I think the answer comes much later when God again appeared as a man in Jesus Christ and became weak so that we could be strong one last verse, Galatians 4, 6. And I want you to get this. Because you are His sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. There's a leadership secret key you probably know this already, that whenever you're in a meeting, and it can be an informal meeting, maybe a bunch of teachers standing in the hallway, or maybe a boardroom where everybody's sitting around wearing nice clothes, any kind of meeting, you want to know who's the leader? 
follow the eyes. Have you heard of this? Look at who everybody's looking at when folks are talking. That tells you who they think matters. They want to know what they're thinking about what they're saying. They're the ones that they're looking at. That's exactly what God wants to be for you. That's what this, this verse is all about. God has given us the Spirit of His Son into our hearts that we look to God and call Him Father. He's the one we're looking for. He's the eyes that we're looking for. When something happens, when I'm feeling something, when I'm angry about something, when I want something, when I'm hurting, He's the one I look to. And God has given us that Spirit that we can call Him our Father. He's our first response. He's the one that we want to know. Because here's the reality. Your earthly parents may fail you. Your marriage may end in divorce. Your children may disappoint you. Your job, you might lose it. Your health, it's only a matter of time. We know this. And we put all this stock into all of this. It's only a matter of time until we're going to be disappointed. God's saying, I'm right here. I want you to call me Father. And He wants to call you His child. And that's why He sent His Son. So that you could have that relationship. We're going to sing a song to encourage you to make that decision. So that you can call God your Father. That you would put Him on the, the throne of your heart. Let Him make you a new creation in baptism. Give you His Spirit. And for the rest of your days, it won't be a struggle with God. It'll be a walk with God as you look to Him. If we can pray for you in any way, I want you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.